0: So what if your entire life was defined by your worst decision? It was the most selfish thing he had ever done. For someone of his reputation and in his position, it was unthinkable. Would his people ever forgive him? Would God? What if your entire life was defined by your worst Decision because that's the exact kind of pressure that King David was facing. So I'm stepping out on a limb here, but I think the fear of being found out is a very real fear for many people. And that fear finds the light of day in statements like this No one would love me if they knew all the things I hide. Sure, I don't tell my wife everything. There's some things I kind of got to keep to myself. You know, I've, I've learned to just keep people at arm's length because there's some stuff I'm dealing with and I'm going through. I think that fear is very real, at least for some days it is for me. But here's what I believe. I believe that God wants us to live without fear. And so just to set up the tension really quick this morning, when we're faced with the reality of our sin... We've got two choices either minimize it and get on with my life, or see it for what it is and worship. So that's where we're going today. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 42 and 43. And uh, through that, Pastor James up at Citizens Akron taught us that any conflict I have in me is smaller than God's care for me. Last week, we looked at Psalm 147, and we said where praise focuses, peace falls. And so I want to build on those two this morning in Psalm 51, and we're going to learn from somebody who knew a thing or two about sin, about desperation, about repentance, and about restoration, King David. David. So here's where we're going. Psalm 51, sometimes called David's darkest hour. But by hearing from this deeply human and still anointed king, I believe God wants us to learn that repentance restores what sin severs. Say that again. Repentance restores what sin severs. So if you noticed from the subtitle of this psalm as you were reading it, this psalm is set against a very real story in David's life. And we've got to get a handle on that. Uh, before we get into Psalm 51, that story is, saw, is found in Second Samuel chapter 11, and it won't be on the screens. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, great, you can turn to Second Samuel 11, uh, or if you just want, you can just sit back and relax for a minute, because um, we need to get a handle on this story a little bit. The emotions, the circumstances, the insights from this story, this very real event, are what birthed Psalm 51. So. 2nd Samuel 11 In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and all his servants with him and all of Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Who's been to Cedar Point? Okay? Anybody? Right a lot of us, right? It's our birthright here in Northeast Ohio. This is what we get, right? And so for most of us, here's the deal. If you've been to Cedar Point, you get in that front car or the roller coaster. Like you kind of pull away from the loading ramp, turn the corner, you're looking up at that hill, seat leans back, click, click, click. Right? You start to get higher and higher, click, 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 until you're really, really high up there, click, 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 and then you lean over until there's just click, click. <laughs> That's how we're supposed to feel at this point. In This story you can tell there's something about to happen and it won't be long before things head downhill very fast and it's not going to be very pretty Few things about David at this point in his life. He is 50 years old. He has been king for 20 years He has seen zero military defeats So put all that together. He's riding high. He's in his prime. No one is questioning his ability to lead No one's questioning his place in God's kingdom or his integrity. And if you just glance back at your Bible over the headings in the previous sections, you'll see it paints an overwhelmingly positive picture of what's going on in David's life. But how many of you know that's when the bottom is about to drop out? Verse (laughs) 2. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and he took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Remember that hill we were sitting on top of just a few verses ago? Little adult content here, so I'm going to summarize. David sees Bathsheba, he sends word, he sleeps with her, she conceives, game over. A couple quick things we need to know here. Bathsheba's name, her name literally means Daughter of an oath. Right? So what he would have heard was, is this not the daughter of an oath? The wife of? The daughter? Implication. Eyes off, dude. She's not yours. And then how about this, like, little anonymous, nameless servant that just, like, shows up to give David an out? This is God being good to David in the form of accountability. And then David just, like, blazes right past him. And then Bathsheba's only words in the entire narrative, in fact, her only words in the entire book of 2 Samuel, she says nothing else other than, I am pregnant. There's no, like, intriguing dialogue, no implication of refusal. I mean, what's she going to say? He's the king. But the story gets worse. So David realizes something's up. He brings Uriah back from the battlefront. He says, okay, clean cover-up attempt. Here we go, right? I'm going to bring Uriah back from the battlefront, and I'm going to see if I can get Uriah to sleep with his wife Bathsheba, because if they can yada, 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 I won't have to explain how I yada, yada, yada. And then that's everything's covered. We're good. This is the clean cover-up attempt, okay? And Uriah goes, no, I'm not going to do that. I I will come back, but I won't sleep with my wife. That wouldn't be right while my men are in the battlefield. And so David goes, okay, I'm going to get the guy drunk And then maybe if he uh, can loosen up his resolve a little bit, maybe that will lead to what I want to have happen. This is the dirty cover-up attempt. Then when that doesn't work, he says, fine. Sends Uriah back to the battlefront and tells Joab, he says, hey, at a crucial point in the battle, I want all you guys to remove yourselves. I want you to pull back from Uriah so Uriah is struck down. That way he can spin this wonderful story about poor old Uriah who came home and slept with his wife and went out like a dutiful servant to the battlefield and never got to meet his unborn son. And David can rest easy because he doesn't look bad. And then in a weird, sick twist of authority, David, this man after God's own heart, this giant slaying, psalm-writing shepherd boy who's like every other page of like children's Sunday school coloring books, Invites Bathsheba back after he kills her husband. And verse 27 says this. Brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And so if you're here and you're going like, I feel sick. You should, because this is terrible. And here's a little interpretive principle for you. There's a big difference between what the Bible records and what the Bible endorses. Because at the end of verse 27, there's this little phrase. It says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is not God's desire for David. But David gets away with it for a little while. Literally gets away with murder. But then. Chapter 12. God sends Nathan the prophet to David. Here's what happens. Nathan came to David. He said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich man, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And when he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's little ewe lamb and prepared it for the man that came to him. How does David respond to this little subversive parable from Nathan? David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Nathan knocks on the door, launches into this parable subversively arouses David's anger, only to have the finger point back at himself. And then what follows in the rest of chapter 12 and 13 is Nathan, as a prophet of God, speaking for God, just unloading God's punishment on David. He says, basically, like just to summarize, remember that roller coaster you were on, David? You're never going to get off of that sucker. Your family is going to be after your throne. There's going to be conflict with your kids. This is not going to go well for you, David, but... God will still use you according to his sovereign purposes. Welcome to leadership, buddy. Whole point of the David narrative. Sin has disastrous consequences and God has amazing grace. Both of these things exist in the exact same place. They are not contradictory. And so that question I asked you a little bit ago, what if your entire life was defined by your worst decision, really depends on one thing. Your response to God's truth. So some of you, God's got a Nathan in your life, and you're not listening to him. That's not going to go well for you. Some of you, God's got a Nathan in your life, and you have bowed the knee, and you humble your heart, and you go, okay, God, I invite you in. And thankfully, David responded with repentance, and so while he still had short-term consequences, he enjoyed long-term grace. All of this is the cultural landscape that informs Psalm 51. So before we head into the psalm, I've got to stop, and we've got to get a little bit of a handle further on this. What are we supposed to do with this thing? I'm going to give you a couple of principles. These aren't the main point of where we're going, but I know some of you like to write notes, so if this is you, feel free. Here we go. Five principles just from this little David narrative. First thing, we have limitless capacity for self-deception. Limitless capacity for self- deception. David thought he couldn't be touched. He thought he was invincible. Point, stay close to Jesus. Second little application from here. Our lack of self-awareness is often our greatest barrier. One question few people are courageous enough to ask is, do I see myself correctly? If David had asked that question, he would have seen his blind spot. This nameless guy up there that goes, hey, David, um, you need to consider this. Third thing, success can mask a heart of selfishness. David was wildly successful. He's 50 years old. He's been a king for decades, zero military defeats. The dude is rocking, inwardly imploding. How is that possible? Because success outwardly does not always equate to inward faithfulness. Fourth principle tasting sin does not satisfy your craving, it intensifies it. This is probably the most immediately applicable principle that we can get from this David thing like, don't taste sin. It doesn't make it go away, it actually makes you want more. It's the way sin works, so don't stink and touch it. (laughs) And then the last thing, before we get to Psalm 51, and this is huge. When you remove yourself from accountability, you open the door to moral collapse. God put this dude on the porch to go, hey David, isn't this, and he's like, yeah. (laughs) Point, you cannot do this Christian life alone. A Christian outside of community is a Christian about ready to fall. It's the way sin works. So all of that is preamble to Psalm 51. I'm aware of my time. Believe me. (laughs) Psalm 51 is a gift to us because it is a window into what God can do with a truly repentant heart. So back on track. Psalm 51. Blank filler types. Here you go. Three ways that repentance can restore what sin severs. Here's your first one. Repentance restores our relationship with God. Go back to Psalm 51 and look with me in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David's first words are beautiful here. He goes, have mercy on me, O God. That noun mercy is a really old word in Hebrew, and it means to bow down or to stoop to show favor to someone. The best thing I can think of is it's like a father who does this, and he looks at his son, and he grabs him, and he says, I've got you. It's going to be okay. And that's what David is pleading for. He's like, God, please be merciful. Would you condescend to me? Would you come down to me? This is a wonderful juxtaposition of confession of sin and confession of belief in God's goodness. These two things that exist. And this kind of talk is all over the pages of the Bible. It shows up in Luke 18 when the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner when Paul says in 1 Timothy, right, where he says, Jesus had mercy on me, the chief of sinners. That's why mercy figures so prominently in the life of Jesus, because it's part of his character. But here's something else that we need to see in Psalm 51. Did you catch the bathing imagery in here? Wash me, cleanse me. What's with that? When was the last time that David thought about somebody bathing? David is linking his confession with the sin that broke him. He's making it his. And that's a huge insight into repentance. In order for repentance to happen, two things must be in place, right? Here they are, two things. First thing, a deep personal conviction about the gravity of my personal sin, my responsibility for the sin and the hurt that I caused, me, but then also a rock-solid belief in the goodness of God, his inclination toward me, his love for me, his bent toward mercy. Here's why Christians don't repent, okay? It's why we don't like this. Two reasons, okay? One could be we have a weak view of sin, we call it a mistake or like an oops a momentary lapse of judgment a mistake i was just immature something i should have known better about like no it's sin i broke god's law and i don't like to grind on this so hard cuz it doesn't make this a very feel good message but i got to put it out there and here's why small sins lead to small saviors when you minimize sin you minimize jesus We need a deep conviction about the personal ownership behind sin. My sin. I have blown it. But then secondly, maybe some people have the opposite problem. They have a deep conviction about the personal ownership behind their sin, but their view or their opinion or their feeling of the goodness of God is not rock solid it's like this like flimsy little house that's like perched on the edge of a cliff and if i add like one more straw to this twig house it's all going to come down crashing and god's goodness is going to implode because he can't possibly love me that may be people right that may be you know your dad or your mom that may be your ex-spouse that could be your boss or somebody you work with but it's not god That's why David says, be merciful to me. How? According to your compassion. God's goodness to me ensures my safety to come to him. One of the devotional tools that I like a lot, um, some people ask me, like, you know, could you recommend a devotional tool? i recommend this one for you. It's called Morning and Evening. It's by Charles Spurgeon. It's it's an old one. It's got some great language in there. Here's one thing I want to read to you. I think it gets this, this tension really well. Jesus is a greater Savior than you think Him to be when your thoughts are at the greatest. My Lord is more ready to pardon than you are to sin, more able to forgive than you are to transgress. My Master is more willing to supply your wants than you are to confess them. And here's the kicker never tolerate low thoughts of my Lord Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 4 is what theologians call the gut punch. High brow theology word right there, right? Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Here's the crux of repentance. One word, ownership. David owns his sin. And here's how this connects to church, like just to spin it a whole different direction. The kingdom of God will never be wider than its people are deeper. You want the church to grow? Own your personal sin and stay close to Jesus everything else is just strategy and marketing. Be a disciple of Jesus. Own it. I don't like that either, but it's got to be there. Have you ever gotten one of those apologies that's not really an apology? I have. Sure you have, right? You may not know this, but in Ohio, we have an Ohio apology. This does not exist in other places in the country, okay? An Ohio apology is like one word that you can say that gets you out of everything, okay? It actually, now this is true, you're gonna hear it all the time now. It's really like half of a word and it sounds like this. Oop. <laughs> Oop. Now you're gonna hear it everywhere. Like you sneak behind somebody at the, like, in the aisle at the grocery store, you're just like, oh, 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 oh. You're about to walk into somebody with some hot coffee. Oop, all is forgiven. <laughs> that's good. You can T-bone somebody in the middle of an intersection. Oop, no, that's probably too far. But what is with these, like, we have these in our culture all the time. They're shallow apologies. They seriously sound like this. I'm sorry you were hurt by that. Ever heard that one? I'm sorry you misunderstood me. I'm sorry that that happened. Why are those not true apologies? Because they take responsibility and they push it out here. Like, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. I'm sorry you misheard me. I'm sorry you didn't get that. Or this one. I heard this one. I'm sorry you're so sensitive. (sighs) And every empath in the room just threw up in their mouths a little bit. Like, really? Come on. True repentance is deeper than that. True repentance gets underneath the problem, seeks to understand it, and owns it. It doesn't just express regret that it's here. It says, no, I've got a part to play in this thing, and I've got to own it. And so here's where we're going to go. Six steps for repentance, right? And these are going to come so stupid, crazy quick, and I'm sorry for that, but six steps for repentance. Here you go. First off, repentance never includes the word but. It never includes the word but. Here you go. It sounds like this. I'm sorry, but here's why I did that, right? Or if you're a parent with multiple kids in your house. I'm sorry I did that, but here's what he did. Why is that not true? Because if you are so desperate for repentance, you don't get to tie strings onto it. You're so desperate for restoration, there's no qualifier to it. Second rule for repentance. Repentance keeps the focus on your actions. Repentance keeps the focus on your actions. Imagine if David said this. He goes, you know, God, I am sorry. I really am sorry. But oh, sovereign creator of the universe, why did you put a naked woman on a roof? Where were you on that one? Right? That's laughable. <laughs> That's not true repentance, but we do that all the time. God, why didn't you give me? Bah, 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 bah. God, why didn't you follow through on your promise to? Bah, 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 bah. God, why didn't you make her or him more like what I really needed? It's the same thing since the garden, right? Like uh, it was her fault—the fruit thing. It was all her. Uh, it was all the snake's fault, right? And God's going like, "No, it's you. It's you. Let me rebuild you." Third thing, repentance is rooted in emotional grief. If we went back to the rest of the Second Samuel narrative and we looked at what happened to David after this, you'd get a sense of his profound emotional grief. He doesn't eat, he doesn't sleep, he lays on the floor and nobody could move him. He prays, he cries, he fasts, and then after grieving hard, then he worships. There's an emotional element to repentance that we cannot fake Fourth thing, repentance needs to be backed by creative or by corrective action. Creative action, too, I suppose, but definitely corrective action. Talk is cheap. Right? If David's I'm sorry, God, only lasted as long as the next open-air, eye-wandering moment, did he mean it? No. What are you doing with this? Fifth. Repentance should not serve to silence someone. That's a biggie because we do that all the time. Like, okay, fine, I'm sorry. Like, whatever, let's just move it along here. What do I got to do? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What I'm really saying is shut up. I'm done hearing you. Repentance does not serve to silence someone. It seeks to understand someone first. And then the last, the sixth one. Repentance should not be offered just to make you feel better. Repentance should not be offered just to make you feel better. One of the most dangerous pieces of Christian counsel you could get is confess, it'll make you feel better. Confession booth much, right? I just got to get in here and unload this stuff, right? No, because you're going to feel worse first. We don't, and that's not why we repent. We don't repent for short-term happiness. We repent for long-term joy. And those are different things. Which leads to the next point. So if the first way that repentance restores what sin severs is by restoring our relationship with God, then repentance also restores our joy in God. Repentance restores our joy in God. Look with me in verses 7 through 12 and see if you can't hear the emotional language coming out in this one. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my, or your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You hear him pleading in here, just like, God, please bring it back. Bathing imagery again. Did you catch that? He's wash me, purge me. He's still in that space. Hyssop, what is that? We don't have that anymore, right? Like, what is hyssop? Hyssop was used in two things. One, um, it's a medicinal plant. It's used as like an antibacterial or like an expectorant or even a cough suppressant in this day. Which is kind of cool. But then two, it was used in the Old Testament. The first place it shows up is in the Passover where God deals with the atonement of his people. Put that little factoid away for a little bit. Atonement and hyssop go hand in hand. And David's going like this. He goes, I am sick and I am unclean. I am broken. I can't get myself better. I need a priest who can do two things. Make me clean and pronounce me well. We'll come back to this in a little bit. But David's asking for a couple of things here. I want you to see him in the text. He's asking for forgiveness, verse 7. He asks for joy, verse 8. He asks for communion with God in verse 10. And then he asks for divine favor, verses 11 and 12. And he just unloads and he goes, God, here's what I want from you. But here's what's interesting to see with all that. Although David is obviously very desperate, he's also being really bold. He's not just asking God to be merciful. He's actually asking for more. I'm going to give us three very basic theological words that you may have heard before, but I want to throw them out here because I think they have tremendous bearing on what God is going to do for David here. Three words. First one is justice. Justice. Justice means getting what you deserve. It's the legal equivalent of you did the crime, you're doing the time right? Justice, it means everything has to be square. There can't be any loose ends around this thing, and so God is holy, and so in this case, David, racked by his sin, justice means atonement. Someone's got to pay for this, David. And David's sitting here going, God, please don't kick me to the curb. God, please tell me that you're not done with me. Here's the next concept. There's justice, and then there's mercy. Mercy means withholding judgment, not getting what you deserve mercy is punishment held back from you but it's not this like limp wristed namby pamby like easy doormat kind of thing not that mercy is choosing not to exact justice even when you are right to do so it's not the opposite of justice it is a deeper meaning behind justice it is a volitional choice from an authoritative power to withhold judgment because they are motivated by something deeper. There's something deeper than just simply justice. Mercy doesn't ignore it, but it says there's something else at play that I want you to understand. Here's the third word. So you got justice, getting what you deserve. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. And then you got grace, which is getting what you do not deserve. Grace doesn't bring things back to neutral. It pushes it further. Grace gives more. It says, you don't deserve restoration, but I'm going to give it to you anyway because I love you. Grace is driven by relationship. Here's how this works. So, purely hypothetically, say I go home, and right there, on the brand new carpet, is a melted red popsicle with its sad, soggy, forgotten stick. And I know that my 9-year-old daughter Hannah had been eating a red popsicle 4 minutes prior. Hannah would never do this. This is actually something I would probably do. Okay? So just so we're clear, I'm not bashing my daughter. Here's what would happen. I bring her in and I say, "Hey Hannah, come here for a minute." And she goes, "Yeah, dad." And I point and she goes, "Busted." Justice says, "You know you did something wrong, right?" And you deserve punishment, right? Mercy says, I was going to send you to your room but I'm not going to. I'm going to withhold that from you. Grace says, I'm stepping in and I'm going to clean it anyway and then I'm going to take you out for ice cream. This is not a manual for parenting, this is a metaphor for grace. Okay, so children, watch your popsicles, especially on the carpet. Be mindful of those kind of things, right? But here's the point. How is Hannah feeling if like 15 minutes later, me and Mandy and her are over sitting at Handles because of course Handles with Superman ice cream. We're sitting there. How is she feeling at that point? Restored. She's like, look at what my dad did for me. I deserved something that I didn't get and I got something I don't deserve. Oh my gosh, how deep his love must be for me. This is where David is. Grace brings joy back, but not simple, happy, surfacey joy, like deep, abiding joy that draws you to a relationship. So I'm going to blow the ending a little bit for this, because we'll get there, but this is important theologically. David is begging God to bring joy back based on Old Testament promises, okay? So put this, put on your theology hat. What he's saying here, he's going, God, you've been so good to my people. You've been good to Abraham, and you've been good to Moses, and you've been good to me and my fathers and my grandfathers. He goes, please, Don't remove your goodness from me. Because that's really the hardest part about sin, right? Like we just feel this distance from God. And like, it's not him that did it. It's me, right? Remember, David is living with the shadow of Saul right over his shoulder. Saul, okay? Like this king who walked in and said, I am the man. I'm a head taller than all you guys. I'm going to blow this place apart. I am the man. And then God took his hand off of Saul. Massive implosion. Inwardly cavernous. And he collapsed like a sinkhole. And David's going, God, not like that to me. Now, here's the good news. For those of us who live on this side of the cross, if you are in Christ, okay, that is to say that if you acknowledge your sin, you see your desperate need for atonement, and you pin all your hopes on Jesus, God's promise to atone for you is an irrevocable promise. He's not going to unwash your heart, because that would be to undo the sacrifice of Jesus. And so David's fear in in, chapter, or in verse 11 where he says, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That's impossible for you if you are a Christian. The only thing that's missing is joy. And so deep water trinity theology here of the atonement. Here you go. The Father delights in you because the Son died for you. And now the Spirit lives in you, reminding, convicting, confirming, and sealing until Jesus comes back. And that's why any study of the Psalms, you've got to bring Jesus up. This whole series of playlists has been really all about Jesus. Like you hear him throughout every sermon. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate joy bringer. He's the ultimate restorer. So that's the second way that repentance restores what sin severs. Repentance restores our joy in God. Third one, repentance restores what sin severs because repentance restores our purpose in the world restores our purpose in the world. Now this one's kind of my favorite because it takes what David has done with God and what God did for David and then he catapults it into something else that's amazing. Look in verse 13. He says, then, great word, right? Then, if you bring restoration, God, and if you are merciful to me, and if you fix what I totally messed up in my life, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. And then he has this like great little bit about what sacrifices and delights God is really like. Here's why this is striking to me. David sees the ultimate result of his restoration as mission. His restoration is bigger than him. So David's going, yes, I want my relationship with you restored. I want my joy in you restored. But I want them to point somewhere. I want them to point to people who are so desperate to know about you. David realizes that there's been a separation. And he goes, God, I've wounded it. I got it. I own it. It's mine. But then he wakes up and he says, there's other people who feel the same way. This is a broken world. Sin is a big deal. And I can't minimize it David realizes he can't live the way he's supposed to live with a double life and he goes I got to tell everybody about this merciful gracious God that I serve and if you would let me God this is his prayer if you would let me could my story be a trumpet for your grace and your goodness to broken things here's the point inward transformation seeks outward expression inward transformation seeks outward expression here's all that means a restored sinner is the most powerful voice for god's goodness it isn't me from this stage it isn't a sermon from somebody online it's not a book you read that is not how we talk about God's goodness. It is the restoration that God has done in your heart extending to people that you know and people that you are broken for. When you are transformed by Jesus, if, that, if you're in this room this morning and that's happened to you, you instantly become a missionary wherever he has placed you. And that may mean like packing your bags and selling off your stuff and quitting your job and moving to China. It may mean that. Or it may mean... Praying with your spouse and asking forgiveness. It may mean like crossing the street and praying with a neighbor who's going through a rough time. It may mean seeking relational restoration with that family member where things have just gotten super tense. All of that is tied back to the goodness of God. Regardless of where it happens, mission always looks risky, but it's always true to who you are. Repentance has had its full effect when shame and guilt and fear and embarrassment and shadow are converted to love and gratefulness and confidence and mission and light. Because all those fear things, those are all about me and all those other things are about Jesus and his kingdom. Missionary zeal is built on transformed lives. Missionary zeal is built on transformed lives. And so just to be candid for a second, I wonder if the lack of missionary zeal in many churches today, or God help us in our own lives, is because I haven't let repentance have its way in me. Because I don't like looking at my sin. If I don't have a repentant life, my evangelism will be reduced to either church marketing Or vague moralism and neither of those are the gospel. Church marketing sounds like this. Hey, here's a list of 20 things going on at my church. Here's why you should come. When can you get there? Right? That's not the gospel. That's marketing. And I don't want to turn you into marketers. Vague moralism says, oh, you just got to fix some stuff up in your life and be good. That's not the gospel. Mission-driven gospel sounds like this. There's three things. I'll just give it to you super quick. Here's who I was. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how I'm different. Super simple. You look in the New Testament, that shows up over and over and over and over again. Here's who I was. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how I'm different. That's super scary though, right? I'd rather just hand you a pamphlet. Instead, I've got to hand you my heart. And one detail that's just easily overlooked in this whole thing. Gospel-driven mission doesn't just talk like that, it listens like that. We are gospel speakers, we are also gospel listeners. So that's the third way that repentance restores what sin severs. Repentance restores our purpose in the world. What if your whole life was defined by your worst decision? You want to know how David's story ends? You can read about it in 1 Kings, like chapter 1 and 2. David is on his deathbed, He calls his son to him. I'm going to summarize. Here's what he says. He says, get right with God. He says, now here's my 10 strategies for growing a kingdom. He says, no, do what God told you, and there will always be a king on the throne. Heartbreaking reality. Generation after generation of David's family tree blew it. Family rages, kingdom divides, people are deposed and carried away into exile with hooks on their jaws. But if you look further in David's family tree, if you get past the exile, past the divided kingdom, past the rebuilding, past the 400 years of silence, if you look further, you'll find your way to a stable with a couple who's about to give birth to a baby. And this baby would change everything. Because this baby would grow up and take nails through his wrists and through his ankles and he would hang on a cross and he would bleed and he would make atonement for all of us because his father loves you. I'm struck by the reality that we're sort of where we were last week, right? <laughs> and so the band's going to come up, and as they do, I want to invite you to think about something. So nice, like three-point sermon, right? Little blanks, everybody feeling tight. But here's the thing, right? There, there are some of us here this morning where we're stuck. You go, I don't believe that God could love me because of all the stuff that I've done. I almost said something else there. <laughs> all the stuff that I've done. <laughs> and here's my word is that, no, he absolutely does, Right? It's why we make much of Jesus. (laughs) It's because I got nothing else to hide behind but the cross. And then there's others who go, you know what, I believe that, but like joy is like a distant memory. And I had joy maybe a long time ago, but I don't have it now. And then maybe there's a third group that go, you know what, maybe I've got my relationship, I've got my joy, but I'm hoarding it and I don't know what to do with it. And so here's my hope for you. We're going to sing this song called In Christ Alone. And I love it because it basically pins everything on Jesus. It says, I got nothing. That's the subtitle if I had to subtitle it. Let's pray. Father God, you are undoubtedly good to us. You are merciful toward us. You don't give us what we deserve. And then you're gracious to us. You give us what we don't deserve. And all of your justice was pointed at your son who didn't need to die, but he did. What a wonder your love is. So for us in this room, God, as we sing, I pray that these words would be true. I pray that these words would be absolutely where our hearts are. That we have no other hope other than Christ. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.